Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I want to thank you that it is an amazing gift to us. I want to thank you that in your word you are fully and completely revealed. But I also want to thank you for the current and present ministry of your Holy Spirit uh, that enables us uh, to be able to pray for our friends and see them come to freedom. I want to thank you that your spirit is the one that leads us into truth and without your spirit, uh, reading and sitting under your word is just an academic exercise. So this morning, we just posture ourselves, those of us that follow you, and we say, Spirit, um, won't you speak through your word? I want to pray that you would use me, God. Just lead me in this moment. I want to pray uh, for my family that you would enable them to hear what it is that you are saying to them in Jesus' name. Philippians 1, chapter Chapter 1, verses 27 to chapter 2, verse 4. I'm reading out of the ESV and have to get going. Um, <laughs> Only let your manner of life or the way in which you walk be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you, sorry, I may hear of you and that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents, because this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's quite easy in the context of North America, particularly the West, to be focused on what is happening to us right now. Um, and yet across the world, and even as, as Tom and Katie were showing, and, and as others are going to have the opportunity over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're, we're actually going to take seriously what it says to let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's important for us as Christians to understand what's going on with our brothers and, Christians, brothers and sisters around the world. In Somalia, in Nigeria, in Pakistan, in North Korea, and in India, and particularly in northern India where we have some advanced churches, advanced is the network that we're part of, uh, persecution looks very different. Persecution is direct, and it's brutal, it's physical. Uh, there are murders and kidnappings, rapes, bombings, and property is confiscated. People walk in and just take buildings. And in the West, it looks a little different. It looks like derision and cynicism. It looks like skepticism, lies, half-truths, and this coordinated media attack on the church. And let's be honest, the church really hasn't helped itself in that area. This idea of a Christianity where all roads lead to Rome is not what is being attacked, but it's this idea that there is a king, he has a kingdom, and you are not that king. That is what is being attacked, and that is what is under threat. Paul is telling the Philippian church that there is one spirit, that there is a sense of unity in the spirit, and even though the Holy Spirit is experienced in different ways, that it is one spirit, 
this is the same thing that we experience in, in the context of the spirit of this age. Uh, there is a satanic spirit, a spirit of this age that is trying to disrupt the kingdom of God. And it is experienced differently depending on your context and where you live, but it is the same spirit. I've had the opportunity to, to travel a lot, um, particularly in contexts where idol worship is a thing. And I was in Myanmar or Burma um, at one of these um, kind of massive temples, um, and I was seeing people bow down to idols. And, and, and we know, some of you have been on, on missionary trips, and you see something like that, and even people have told me, man, I, I, I just felt kind of the spiritual heaviness, and I, I felt this weight when, when I kind of stepped off the plane or when I was at, in that country. And, and I'm like, do you not feel it here? Do you not feel the, the weight or the oppression here? And, and we don't, because what happens is we, we get nose blind. Now, what is nose blind? Now, those of you that live in Chino, very few of you that live in Chino, okay? I have friends that live in Chino, and I went to visit my friends that live in Chino, and I got out of the car, and something hit me in my face where I was like, what the heck is that smell? I actually went to the front of my car to see if I'd knocked anything over, that I dragged a dead body in my car because that's how offensive the smell was. And what, what happened is my, my friend opens the door and I'm like, can you smell that? And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you, ca you cannot tell me that you can't smell that. It is the most offensive thing. I think my teeth are curling. It's so bad, you know? <laughs> What happens is, in, in the context of those kinds of nose blindness, is you become familiar to the smell in that area. And as Westerners, we've become familiar to the spirit of our age. And he is as active and as treacherous and as demonic as those pictures that, sh that, um, that Tom showed on that screen. We need to understand that because sometimes we think that because we're more civilized, we're less prone to the attack of the enemy, and we are not, and we need to be aware. And Paul is telling the Philippian churches that not only to be aware of the spirit of this age, but the spirit of this age works itself out in persecution. There was active persecution of the church in Philippi. Uh, the Roman way of life was being threatened by this group of believers. And remember, we said that Philippi was a very nationalistic place. It was very patriotic. The fact that Caesar had made it a Roman colony gave it a sense of honor. Citizenship was a big deal in those days, and if you were born in Philippi, you were a citizen of Rome, and that was no mean feat. And in fact, the word worthy that Paul uses is actually a civic term that was used in those days to be, to be able to say, are you worthy of your Roman citizenship? So Paul is turning that around and saying, are you worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Philippi was a mini-Rome. It had a Roman garrison there. There were many retired Roman officers. And often you would walk through the street and the greeting would be, Caesar is Lord. And here a small community is being established whose war cry is, Jesus is Lord. And so in Acts 16, we read um, that they had brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates. And it said, these men, these Jews, not, not just anyone, these Jews, they're not Romans, they are disturbing our cities because they advocate customs that are not lawful, for us as Romans to accept or to practice. Now, make no mistake, we face similar problems because uh, we have been told that we are to be in the world, but not of it, that we are to love our city, 
but not to be lulled by the siren song of comfort, convenience, safety, and security. How, how do we be bold without being bombastic, loving without being compromising, strong while sympathetic at the same time? How do we do that? We stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So how do I walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of my current circumstance or context? Well, the first thing that we see is Paul says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Verse 28 says, and do not be frightened or intimidated or terrified in anything by your opponents or adversaries. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. These are not idiosyncratic phobias. These were real fears. There was real intimidation, real persecution, real terror. And Paul is helping the Philippians see by, by the fact that he's identifying two enemies. Right now, he's identifying the external enemies, the Roman persecution. And in chapter 3, he'll identify the internal enemies of moralism of the dogs that want you to do something external so that you can be acceptable to God. What Paul is doing is something that we as parents often do for our children is we take out of the darkness so that they can see into the light. See, switch the lights on. There's no one in your closet. That's kind of what Paul is trying to do. He's bringing light into this and he's saying, look, it's not as scary as you think. Don't be afraid. What is the clear sign? What is the clear sign? It is an intentional, uncompromising, attractive engagement as a community. Fight and flight are not the only responses. And those of you that have known Karen and I, you know that we are opposite in almost every single way other than we love Jesus. That is, that is and our children, and our children. Yeah. Okay, there's a lot, you know. It's kind of working against my point, but that's fine, you know. My, my automatic response uh, to a dramatic situation is fight. Karen's automatic response is flight. And we think that in the context of fear, those are our only two options. But Paul says that the manner of our life, not just our beliefs, the way in which we live is going to show that the king is here and that he's establishing his kingdom rule. If we live in a way that is engaged, it prevents us from being kind of a separate group of people that are saying, no, we don't want to have anything to do with you. We're just going to separate ourselves here, and we're going to just live in our own little community unaffected by your world. Or if we live in an uncompromising way, in other words, we say these are the standards of truth. This is what God has declared as a pattern for human flourishing. This is what God has declared about marriage. This is what God has declared about sexuality. This is what God has declared about wealth. All of those kinds of things. We live in a way that prevents us from being assimilated into the spirit of this age. And if we live in a way that is attractive, we become a prophetic minority to community that's looking at us. That's saying, if you're not separate from us, but you haven't been assimilated to us, so what are you? We are the people of God that have been rescued by His grace, and that invitation is open to all. And that's how we can stand it. it, it the, the, the idea of not being frightened does not mean that we puff out our chest in a sense, sense of posturing. How many guys of you have seen the, the Discovery Channels where, where the young male and the old male are now going to fight for kind of dominance in the herd, right? And they puff their chests out and the, the mane comes out. And we, we see that every day. 
You know, men are used to posturing. That's partly how we deal with fear. It's, it's, it's not that we're unafraid. It's that we're afraid. You don't posture if you're unafraid. If you're unafraid, you just look at the guy and you smile because you know he can't hurt you. If you're afraid, then you posture. Years before Jesus had completely <laughs> turned my life around. Not true. I was, I was actually... I was actually an elder already, <laughs> and I was, I was walking, I just, I just stepped into a road, uh, a pedestrian crossing, Karen was next to me, and this car just whizzed past, and I just smacked it on the side panel, um, and the guy stopped, and I turned around and said, what? And, um, and Karen is like, what are you doing? Like, what if he turns around? I said, I want him to turn around. You are a pastor in this community. <laughs> Headlines. Pastor involved in road rage incident. <laughs> Quote, what? <laughs> this idea, yeah? Come at me, bro. Come at me. What if he does? Right? You've seen those guys, come at me, come at me, and they're saying, I hope he does not come at me, because I don't know what I'm going to do if he comes at me. Remember, and I need to remind myself of this, we've been called at Mercy Commons as a community to revel in God's mercy, to display God's mercy, to proclaim His mercy, and participate in acts of mercy, none of which I did um, in those moments. My wife reminds me of... <laughs> The solution to fear is not asserting our individual rights. He was wrong. I was right. The solution to fear is not asserting our political or religious rights. That's puffing out my chest. The solution is not to say, okay, well, don't rock the boat. Don't say anything about this. Um, you know, because ultimately then what, what happens is then we just get assimilated into the spirit of this age. The solution is an intentional, uncompromising, act, attractive engagement in our community, the way in which Jesus modeled for us. The second thing that Paul tells us that we can do if we want to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to not fear what they fear. Live distinct lives. Not, not just unafraid of our opponents, but unafraid of what they are afraid of. How many of you know that most of the negative interactions you have with a human being are because they are going through something? People don't wake up in the morning deciding to make your life a misery, even if you believe that's your boss's sole purpose in life. I can guarantee you that it isn't. She doesn't wake up and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure that I'm going to get on his case. And one of the things we need to be aware of is that if, if what makes us happy or if what makes us fearful or if what makes us anxious is identical to the rest of the, uh, to the spirit of this age or the rest of the things that people are worried about, it's probably because we're not living a life that is worthy of the gospel. My girls try and um, frighten me. It's their thing. They want to they give me a fright. And so they'll... They'll, like, I'll walk in the house, and then one of my girls will jump out and go, bah! And then Karen, who's in the kitchen, will get a fright, you know? <laughs> it's a true story, you know? It's a true story. And, and uh, one day they asked me, they said, Dad, you, aren't, aren't you afraid of anything? And I said, I am. He said, what are you afraid of? He said, I'm afraid that you will not love Jesus. Yeah. That's not a fear 
that the rest of the world shares. There are fears the rest of the world shares. I'm not going to make enough money. I'm not going to be recognized. I'm not going to have the status that I deserve. I'm not, I'm not going to have the, all the experiences that I have the opportunity to have. I mean, even there, there, are, there are lots of fears that when we look at those things, we need to say, God, what am I fearing? What, what are those things that I'm afraid of? And if I'm afraid of, or if I'm hopeful, or if those things that bring me joy are the things that bring the rest of the world joy that lives without you as Savior, then maybe I need to be thinking about what those things are. I was listening to a podcast. It was about Brennan Manning's mentor, and I can't remember his name. I don't know, Fry Dominic or something. And uh, it was a French guy. And um, yeah, I wasn't making it. It's, it's something like that. And uh, it says that, that he... Uh, that he got cancer, he moved out of uh, his monastery and he went to live in Paris. Um, and basically what he did is he just, he, he just loved people. And so, you know, uh, he's telling the story, Brandon Manning is telling the story about, you know, isn't it amazing that, uh, that this man was basically invisible and that we should be comfortable living invisible lives. And then the culmination of the story, though, is that there were seven to 8,000 people at his funeral. And I'm like, that does not help me. Do, do you not understand the fact that basically what you're saying is you should be comfortable to live an anonymous life, and then the punchline to your story is that his life was not anonymous, that 7,000 people were there? Are you not getting this? Do you not understand that this is not a good example? And I got mad. I got frustrated. I, I, I was walking, and I had the scowl on my face as I was listening to this podcast. This is ridiculous. And then the Spirit of God spoke to me and said, Nick, you want so badly to be recognized. That's why this thing is bugging you. And I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and I had to repent. I say, yeah, God, I, I, I do. I have this thing in me that, that, that I'm afraid that at the end of my life, none of this will matter. And if I fear that, then maybe I don't fear people, but I'm fearing the spirit of this age. And I need to rest and I need to say, God, what is that? Even, even now, let's just slow down and say, God, what am I afraid that I will never have? Spirit, you are so kind. I'll ask you even now, by your grace. Your word says perfect love casts out fear. And it's not our ability to love you perfectly. It's the fact that you loved us perfectly. And I pray, Father God, that you would expose and you would heal, even right now. That you would help us to be unafraid. Not just of people that oppose us, the spirits that oppose us, but of even what's in our own heart. That when that is exposed, we are not afraid that it's exposed. We are grateful because you're able to do your work. God calls us to faithfulness, not success. God calls us to faithfulness, not success. Nowhere in the context of Scripture did God ever say to someone, I want you to do this and this is what it'll look like when you're successful. God says, I want you to do this. And the faithful men and women those ones in Hebrews 11 are the ones that did it and didn't even come close to seeing the reward 
of what they were going to receive, even the fulfillment of what God asked them to do. God has called us to faithfulness, not success. And the way in which we can oppose this fear is to say, God, I may not know or I may not see, but one thing I will do is whatever your word has said that I am to be faithful in, God, call me to faithfulness, you will bring success. Because if we are faithful, he will bring success. Thirdly, Paul tells us that, and the Philippian church, that we are to expect opposition. Verse 29, for, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also should suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict or agonia, struggle, fight, wrestle, that you saw that I had and hear that I still have. He's in chains. He's in prison. He is struggling. He is in conflict. If we are to live a life worthy of the call of God, we will experience both displeasure and vindictiveness, attacks and exclusions. There will be conflict. There will be suffering. Why? Because this was consistent with the Old Testament examples. This was consistent with Jesus, consistent with the apostles, consistent with Paul. Why would we think there is anything different for us? In the context of opposition, a lack of internal integrity combined with external pressure, this opposition leads to a catastrophic failure of our faith. If what we say we believe, we don't really believe, in the context that we don't act it out, then when pressure is put on us to act out those beliefs, we fail. And then we blame God. But in reality, we haven't done the internal work to ask the question, do I really believe what I say I believe? In our context, you see this when a young child walks to a Christian group at his school through the insults of his classmates. You see this when a young woman refuses to engage in sexually appropriate behavior and loses her boyfriend and her friends. You see this when a man refuses to fudge the data um, at his work and loses his job. Those are some of the ways in which we see the opposition that we experience, in which we see that suffering. Very, very, very few of us will be in the position of having our daughters kidnapped, our wives kidnapped, being murdered, being maimed for the gospel, but we will be in a position where the internal integrity of our faith is tested by external pressure. And when we are, we can only say, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Help me to live in the way in which you've called me to live. I used to coach Fallon's softball team. And other than saying, keep your eye on the ball, the most consistent thing that I would say is don't be afraid of the ball. Don't be afraid of the ball. In fact, one day I took one of the kids out and I threw the ball at her and hit her with the ball. And I said, see, it's not so bad. Okay. Now, before you take my parenting advice, I did not wail it at her. Okay. I just tossed it at her and she was relieved that it wasn't as sore as it was. This is, this is what I've... Listen, I also have another theory, and this is my theory. Is that every young man needs to be hit in the face once. Okay? Seriously. Mainly because they need it, but secondly, because you realize it's not as bad as you think it is. It's not as bad as you think. It's actually more sore to hit someone in the face than it is. Anyway. See, this is, this is what happens when I don't have enough time. Anyway. 
Don't be afraid of the bull. Don't be afraid of the bull. Once you're hit with a bull, you actually have more courage. She stands up at the plate and she realizes actually she may get hit with a ball. Now, this is the problem with us as Christians. We spend most of our time practicing getting hit with the ball. We're like, yeah, God said I'm going to face persecution. So here I am. I'm just going to muscle up, okay, and I'm just going to stand there. And I'm just going to wait. And Because you know, Jesus said, yeah, I was going to, um, I'm going to. No, that's not the point of the game. The point of the game, which the Dodgers do not realize, <laughs> the point of the game... The point of the game is to hit the ball. We have a purpose on, in, in, in this life. And it's not to just live with the fact that we're going to get hit with a ball. That Jesus has called us to proclaim and demonstrate the coming of his kingdom. And every now and then, we will get hit with a ball. And just like in baseball, every now and then, it will be by mistake. Every now and then, it will be on purpose. But we can't focus on that. We have to muscle up and understand what it looks like to hit the ball. And that's what it is to live in the context of persecution. We don't practice being persecuted. We practice the proclamation and demonstration. And the most effective tool that we have in the midst of persecution and irrelevancy is that our actions match our words publicly and privately. That our actions match our words publicly and privately. Why don't we need to be afraid? Have you ever said to someone, don't be afraid? And they're like, oh, thanks. I'm suddenly not afraid anymore. Thank you so much. I, you know, I wish I'd thought of that. You know? It's the same way when you say to, to someone who's angry, just calm down. Oh, thanks. I didn't think of that. I'm so grateful. No, what we need is reasons not to fear. So with my girls, like, I, I bring something into the light. I say to them, look, don't be afraid of this. Let, let, me, let me help you understand why you should not be fearful of this. And Paul does this in verse 1. So he says, so, in the context of what he's already said, so if there is any encouragement or consolation in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. The Spirit leads us towards unity. Why don't we need to be afraid? Because you are much less afraid when you're in a large group of people, right? So, so basically, it's like, everyone come and let's see what's in my closet. You're not afraid, right? There's a sense in which the Spirit draws us to this place of unity because unity is one of the ways that we can ensure that we are not being kind of molded into this fearful, wait until the ball hits me. It's this idea of actually having the rest of the community come and say, come and st I'll stand with you, man. I'll help you to hit that ball. I'll, I'll rub it if you do get hit with the ball. But that, remember, that's not the purpose. Yes, that sucked. Yes, it was difficult. But let's move forward. Let's move on. We don't drift to unity. It's not, unity is not something you drift into. You seek it. You pursue it. You guard it. Throughout Scripture, those are words that are connected with unity. Seek, guard, pursue. You know, you know what, this is the difference between leftovers and making a nice meal. And Karen having been gone for the last three days, this is a very prevalent example, okay? When you make leftovers, it's kind of like you drift into a meal, right? You open the fridge and you're like, okay, there's that, and there's that, and there's that, and 
We'll pop it in the microwave and, okay, that's a unique taste, but I'm fed, right? <laughs> that, that, that is drifting towards unity, okay? When we seek it, pursue it, guard it, it's like saying, what do I need to make this amazing meal? Yeah. I know what I need. I need some cilantro. I need some rice. Do I have any? No, I don't. I need to go to the store. I need to ask my next door neighbor, Brian, what do I need? How long do I need to prepare this? Okay, I've got the shrimp. I'll do that. I don't have chilies that are hot enough. What am I going to do with that? I think I'll talk to Chris because Chris has chili bushes in his backyard, etc., etc. So there's the sense of if you want something that is unique and full of taste and bold, it needs effort. And so you don't drift towards unity. The ingredients of unity are what Paul gives us in here. The, the same love, the same spirit, the same mind. He's saying, you mix these things together, you will be unified. That, that we are loved by Jesus. That we, the same spirit that united us with Christ unites us together. And we have the same mind, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about Jesus, the way we think about people, it's the same way. It's aligning ourselves with what the Spirit is saying. It's aligning ourselves with what the Spirit is doing. And in, in that context, there was a lot of opportunity for disunity. There was, dis, there was opportunity for disunity, and we will get to it in chapter 4, where Paul actually deliberately says, hey, look, these two people are fighting. You need to help them to come together. And a lot of the commentators say it probably was around class and citizenship. It probably was around the fact that, that there were some Romans, that there were some Jews, that there were some people that were circumcised, that there were some people that were not, that there were some people that were rich, that there were some people that were poor. And yet when you think about how the Philippian church was birthed, how was it birthed? A slave girl, a businesswoman, and a jailer. Three completely different socioeconomic groups. And you know what happens in the context of a church? Often, in the context of a church, when God gives a church a weighted grace, there is an intentional attack on that weighted grace. And as this church was planted, as a church that represented, in those days particularly, but even now, but certainly in those days, a broad church for the poor, for the rich, for men, for women, for Jews, for Romans, for Gentiles, for everyone. This is where everyone can come. This is where the enemy comes and says, I'm going to burrow right in there. And for us in the context of a community, those are things that we need to guard. Because one of the things that is a weighted grace in the context of this community is our community. But we can't rest on that. We need to be aware of what the enemy would like to do. How on earth are we going to face external criticism if we are not internally united? And that's what Paul is saying to the Philippian church. Understand this. You guys need to be of one, of one love, of one spirit, of one mind. This unity is fueled by pride. And that's why Paul goes after that. In verse 28, he reminds us that our salvation is from God. There's nothing that we can do to receive that. And next week, we'll talk a lot more about humility. But in those days... This, this idea of that I am a pure Roman was a, was a big deal. Anyway, I'll skip that. The Spirit empowers us to live purposefully if we are focused on mission. Purpose amplifies unity and gives unity a purpose. Purpose amplifies unity 
and gives unity a purpose. What does that mean? It means that we are not united for unity's sake. We are not united for unity's sake. There is a purpose to our unity. And that purpose is the mission that Jesus gave us and his disciples. That purpose is to proclaim the fact that Jesus' kingdom has come. To proclaim the fact that sin, Satan, and death do not need to be feared anymore. To proclaim that there is a different king sitting on the throne and we are his subjects. To proclaim that, that you can break the chains that have bound you to your idols. That is the purpose. Verse 27 says, With one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Verse 2 says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. And that word full accord is actually like, it's a military word. It's like being in a treaty with, being in an alliance with, and of one mind. And you know what we're good at in the context of the church? We're good at fighting each other. We're not good at fighting with each other. And what Paul uses is this imagery of, of next to each other, side by side. He uses this imagery of this... Um, a Roman tortoise formation, where he's saying side by side. Now remember, this is something that they would have understood. There was a Roman garrison there. There were lots of soldiers where this idea of side by side is something that, they, that, that would have penetrated their psyche. As one man, this tortoise formation moves forward as one man. And you know what the weakness of this formation is? It has to be moving forward. If it just stays still, all you do is just go around it and attack the sides and the back. Because you only have one shield. And so the idea is constant forward motion. Yeah, look, the truth is, we do want to like people we do church with. I mean, that, that would be nice. And I think, for the most part, we do. But you know when those arrows come? And you know when you're engaged in a mission that you can only fulfill with the help of the person next to you? Suddenly, you don't really care about whether you like them or not. You care about whether they can do their job. You care about whether their shield is up. You care about whether they are responding to the commands of their commanding officer. That's what you care about. This sounds exhausting. Nick, I, you, I have to do all these things. But you know what? In verses 1 to 3, Jesus has given us four key things that actually make this a response to his kindness rather than something that needs to earn his grace. So if there is any encouragement or consolation in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy make my joy complete. As a Christ follower, we've experienced these four things. The, the word if is not a vain hope. What Paul is using is a, a rhetorical device. So when you ask a rhetorical question, he's saying, now, now if you've received these things, he knows that the Philippian church has received these things. If you've received encouragement or emboldenment in Christ, what have you received? What have you received from Christ? You've received forgiveness of your sin. You've received adoption into his family. You've received intimacy with him. You belong to the king and God is your father. 
This is not based on anything that you do. Because Paul has reminded them that the salvation is not of them. It's based simply on His kindness extended to us. Why else can we be emboldened in Christ? Because He has killed our old man. A friend of mine has said uh, that we are, that there are two of the most powerful enemies committed to our death. And one is Jesus in the sense that He is committed to killing our old man and the other one is the enemy. And he says, I'll rather have that one. Me too. We have received comfort or relief in His love. As a Christ follower, we have an experience of God's love for us. We have an experience of our love for each other. The Philippians had their experience of Paul's love for them, and Paul had their had, had his experience of their love for Him as, as they partnered with Him. We have partnership or fellowship in the Holy Spirit. The way that Paul cared for that church, wrote to that church, made sure that that church was okay. And the way in which they sent finances and they sent Epaphroditus and they made sure that he was okay. There was partnership and fellowship in the Holy Spirit. That's why membership is so important. That's why we can call members of Mercy Commons to say, guys, this is what we're engaged in. Two weeks ago, we said in 1 Philippians 1.19 that Paul says that through your prayers as they, as, he, as they were praying for him and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for, our, for my deliverance. That Paul was relying on the church in Philippi. There was partnership and fellowship in the Spirit. And there was compassion and tenderness, affection and sympathy and joy. Those are not military words. Those are not organizational words. Those are words of a family, words of a father to a son. Words of, of affection and joy. You know, it's hard to be divided if these things are present in us. It's hard to be divided if we are encouraged and emboldened by Christ. It's hard to be divided if we have been comforted by His love. It's hard to be divided if we have partnership and fellowship with the same Spirit, the one Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It's hard to be divided if we have compassion, tenderness, affection, sympathy, and joy for one another. It actually seems like hard work to be divided if we have all four of those things. I've rushed through this. But I, as the band comes up, I just want us to just posture ourselves in a place. And I just want to ask you some questions and allow the Spirit to just dig deep into your soul. I want to ask you the question is, are you afraid? What are you afraid of? You know, there's a power in naming that fear. You open the closet door, you shine the light on, and suddenly it doesn't look so bad. Are you afraid? What are you afraid of? Do you feel alone? Even Paul, imprisoned, did not feel alone. He felt the fellowship and the partnership of the Philippian church. He felt the presence of the Spirit of God. Are you feeling alone? Are you proud? 
You know, Nick, none of the stuff that you said really connects to me. I'm good. Are you bored? 